John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 050.PS3420, certificate number 36073, Mary Anning. It's, it's a dinosaur. When Mary Anning was born in 1799 in the south of England, the word dinosaur did not exist. Uh-huh. In fact, dinosaurs did not exist. Hmm. They did. You know, <laughs> they, had, they had lived hundreds of millions of years ago. <laughs> I hope you weren't saying that she conjured them. She changed the, the course retroactively of history, uh-huh. actually. Uh-huh. She in, not only invented the concept of deep time, but in fact invented deep time. She created a parallel universe where, <laughs> no, she actually went around the world planting fossils. Oh, right. To confuse religious people. Well, you know, God did that in order to test our faith. Sure. God used his instrument, Mary Anning, <laughs> to, plant, <laughs> to plant fossils in the ground all over the world. No, dinosaurs did not exist as a concept because, mm-hmm. and we may, have, we may have recorded this in the Omnibus before, dinosaurs are a fairly recent invention, which seems funny to say, but, you know, in, not until Victorian times was the word dinosaur coined to mean thunder lizard. And even the idea that there, had been, an, that there had been an age of giant reptiles, you know, that we were the, that humans were the post-apocalyptic zombies of a reptile planet. Right. Was not even well known until well into the 19th century. Well, because no dinosaurs put together a podcast explaining the ephemera of their time. What if they did? What if these skeletons we're reconstructing in museums contain coded messages that were intended for us so that we would understand dinosaur culture and art better? So the stone feces of dinosaurs is actually some sort of platinum disc that has recorded their efforts? Even better, this endeavor is a modern version of a giant stone feces. Yeah, right. Let's, we should change the name of the podcast. <laughs> What's the singular of feces? I've never had to say this. Uh, it's not one feces. Surely. Well, let me ask you, is there such a thing as a singular feces? <laughs> like, they always come in pairs. In terms of dinosaurs, yes, they're always fine. I mean... Oh, uh, I see what you're saying. I, is it a fe- feces? A feces. Let's call it that. The show is now called <laughs> Feces. <laughs> you're listening to the feces. <laughs> so tell me, when, I, when someone before 1799 discovered a fossil remains... Not just a seashell, but uh, the head of an ichthyosaur or something. What did they think it was? 
they were forced by their pastor to hide it back in the ground and he hit them on the head with the bone <laughs> so they would forget. <laughs> no, not really. No, not really. Uh, I think we made, this may be in the omnibus already that uh, when fo- the first fossils were found in England, the English, you know, had no idea because clearly nothing in England lived with bones that size. So some people believed it was, uh, uh, they were the bones of the giants mentioned in the book of Genesis, mm-hmm. the offspring of certain angels who had... Uh, mm children with the women of men and, uh, and giants were the result. The book of Genesis has some weird stuff. Yes, it does. Uh, but the, they were killed in the, in Noah's flood. Is that? The- sure. You know, once these bones started to appear, the flood became a handy way for religious people to explain, well, how are we seeing, because extinction was a hard concept for them to understand as we may have explained in the megafauna episode, the idea right. that, you know, the, the assumption was that God created our universe as we see it. And clearly it's perfect because he's God. Right. So why would anything die out? Right. And uh, another theory was that these giant bones could have been Hannibal's elephants that the Romans uh-huh. had brought. Uh-huh. You know, apparently he brought a ton of elephants. He did. Some of them had alligator heads. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> they fell very, very deep in mud all over the British Isles. So, and, and in some cases, like even, even simple ones like ammonites, you, you know, you and I would think, oh, it's a very old seashell. Right. But the process of fossilization was not known then. You know, they called ammonites snake stones and they thought their spiral shape they created a story about saint hilda magically defeating a, a snake and turning it, it, it coiling it into a stone uh, so they invented these uh, sort of wild myths to explain these things they were finding bellum knights these uh, uh you know, early i think cretaceous cuttlefish were called devil's fingers uh-huh. and did they actually believe they were the finger of the devil I, <laughs> I assume not but they did assume these things might have some kind of magical or talismanic powers I wonder if the story of the flood uh, during, say, medieval times played a smaller role in the cosmology of a kind of biblical interpretation of the world than the flood took on in the 19th century as a method of describing where all these fossils had come from. So, for instance, I mean, we think of Noah's flood as being one of the big stories of the Bible, one of the major explanatory texts. I wonder if that was true in 1200, for instance. That's an interesting question. I mean, it certainly would have a different utility. Right. We can still see the appeal of Noah's Ark today as a children's story. You know, not a lot of Bible stories have easy toy tie-ins. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> like All the animals, all the little figurines. Sure. It's just like a strawberry shortcake cartoon, you know, like, hey, I can see how we can really merchandise this whole flood thing. But, when, but now that we have a different explanation for fossils, the flood story then returns to being sort of a children's story. And again, one that's kind of inexplicable, like why do we talk about all the people that God killed on this day? (laughs) I mean, it's just another example of like God was displeased and killed everybody as opposed to what it would have been in in the early 19th century, which was a a real way of describing. Yes, it's like a police procedural to them or, you know, a documentary, you know, at 1201, it began to rain. Because you had to explain what were all these animals and, and why, were they, why huh. were they dying? I wonder if our ex- explanation of dark matter, you know, the, the, the way that we're reaching to describe string theory now and putting together alternate universe theories and so forth, whether ultimately that will be seen by the future sentient cloud of mollusks that listens to this program as similarly fantastical. Well, the Noah's Ark story tells you that, uh, you know, myths from thousands of years ago, you know, something the Babylonians would tell each other around a campfire at night, even though they're not used, you know, that centuries later they will be used to explain the history of the world. 
And, uh, and, you know, even once that wears off, we'll still be a beloved popular story. It makes you wonder which stories from our time are going to, you know, is somebody going to find a faded videotape of, (laughs) of 16 candles or pretty in pink and be like, ah, the Molly, you know, it'll be, it'll be, uh, John and Yoko, right. It'll be like, oh, uh, the, the original people. John and Yoko. These two naked people. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Woke woke up lying in a bed. (laughs) And that bed in was the, uh, was the origin story of, of all future generations. Cause John and Yoko do look like closer to a cloud of mollusks than they do a contemporary pair of humans. At least one of them would think of that as a compliment. I think the double fantasy album is going to be less effective in the future. I think because they're going to have no shortage of pictures of naked people. Right. That's all they're going to have. Right. You know? That is our legacy. They're all going to have the post-pornographic uh, age. Right. Uh, our computer discs will just be full of... <laughs> now it's all digital. Maybe it won't survive. Maybe Double Fantasy will be their only pornography. <laughs> well, so here we are in the, in the early 19th century. A woman named Mary Anning is born in Lyme Regis, England, in, in uh, Dorset. King Lyme. Yes, uh, it was originally called Lime after a nearby river, which is probably related to the limestone formations, because as we're going to see, this is a fossil-heavy part of the world, and a royal charter by, I think, Edward II made it Lime Regis. This was, you know, the royal town of Lime. Right, And today, it's part of what the UNESCO World Heritage list of sites calls the Jurassic Coast, which I guess is an attempt to make Southern England sound like a Spielberg movie. It's exciting. <laughs> Good news, kids. We're going to, can you imagine? You have to tell your kids we're going to go see the Jurassic Coast. Yay. And they're already, and then it turns out to be a, a sort of sleepy little market town out yeah. of a Jane Austen novel. Another gray Southern <laughs> right. English town. A, a beach full of pebbles that make your, make your feet hurt. A solitary pier uh, that's swept by cold rain. Daddy, where are the velociraptors? <laughs> Mary Anning grew up very poor on the Jurassic Coast. Oh, uh, it was called that because the Jurassic Coast was, in the Triassic period, a desert. During the Jurassic period, it was a a warm sea. It was underwater. It was Uh a tropical sea. And then in the Cretaceous period, it was all a big marsh. Was it underwater because sea levels were higher, or, or did the land raise up geologically later. Both things do happen over 100 million years. In this case, probably more sea levels. I think that's I think that's a bigger effect generally than the land actually going up and down. Um, but probably both. And uh, all these layers were preserved very well. And it's a stormy area. You know, in the winter, there's violent storms and high tides. The sandy bluffs on the Jurassic coast get eaten away. Mm-hmm. And you can see 185 million years of history neatly stacked huh. from desert to sea to marsh. And as the waves come in, they expose new fossils, and uh, it's kind of a never-ending treasure trove that even back then people thought of as, ooh, this is where you can get those cool beach curiosities. Uh-huh. People would go there to souvenir hunt. Not, not scientists, just regular tourists who wanted a, a cool snake stone or devil finger. Right. And Mary Anning's father was a carpenter, poor cabinet maker. Ten children, so he could be the world's best cabinet maker and still be poor, probably. Ten children... How many survived? Right. Uh, it's interesting. Mary Anning was actually his second daughter named Mary. The first Mary Anning had died in a, in a tragic fire, I think at four years old, uh, adding some wood shavings to a fire, to a stove in the house, Ugh. which is terrible. And I they, hate those stories. And, I know. And you can tell there were less than 10 names back then because when, <laughs> when they had another daughter, they named her Mary Anning, you know. Oh, is that right? Yeah, she was named for her late sister. Oh. Or maybe the idea is it's a it's a you know, it's a replacement. It's a 
It's a bit of a do-over from the universe. You know, that is what makes doing genealogy so difficult. <laughs> because you're like, my grandmother was Mary Anning, and then someone finds a headstone that's four years apart, and you're like, well, now which one of these is the Mary Anning that is my relative? Turns out it was both. Sure. I mean, futurelings may not know this, but we live in an era where uh, people are commonly made fun of for giving these Baroque, arcane, made-up names to their children with the idea that everyone should be a, a unique little flower. Right. Briannoche. But there are some benefits to being the only Briannoche. Like, think how easy genealogy is for the futurelings. Like, You're right. There's only one Briannoche, probably, because everyone realized very quickly what a mistake that was. We are the last generation to have been named John and Ken. <laughs> right? The, the people in the past probably think of us as like Og and Grug. You know, these are like one-syllable <laughs> caveman names to them. They're like, Ivalavidiana, why are you listening to John and Ken again? What could these short-named Neanderthals have to tell us? If you were born today, your name would be spelled K-Y-N. <laughs> there would be some kind of a, an accent mark yeah. somewhere, probably over a consonant. I would be G-E-O-N-N with an accent G. So the family was very poor, and to supplement his income as a carpenter... Her father would go to the coast, the bluffs overlooking the sea, and uh, look for little fossilized shells. This was like rock collecting or something. He was finding little curiosities, but they had no scientific significance at this point. That's true. It was a pretty object. In fact, the word fossil comes from the Latin word for to dig, and it, it was originally, it meant anything you pull out of the ground is a fossil. Hmm. You know, like uh, an emerald. That's a fossil, because hmm. oh, it just means things that are excavated, basically. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So yeah, he would find these ammonites or whatever else was on the beach, you know, stuck in the mud and he would try to sell them in town to visitors, and that would supplement their income a little. This was a very, it was a tough time in England. It was, uh, the N Napoleonic Wars had meant food shortages, famines. You sure. Know, a, a lot of expenditure was going to the war, and not a lot of stuff was coming in. Well, and I, I think post-French Revolution, it became less appealing to deal with France at all from the English standpoint. We were kind of at, either at war or... Or I, when I say we, I don't mean yeah. we. Apparently there's a we that to you includes the English and not the French. Well, you know, my mom continues to refer to Napoleon as Bonaparte. <laughs> and, she, and she says it when, when it comes up in conversation, she's like, well, when Bonaparte swept across the, you know, the Germans. I've met your mom, John, and she is not 190 years old. No, she's not. But I feel like the, the feeling of partisanship 
against Napoleon within my own family survives 200 years because, you know, my mom is a Quaker, descendant from English Quakers, and still, I mean, I, I'm sure she calls him Bonaparte because she was raised hearing him referred to as Bonaparte in a dismissive tone of voice, <laughs> like, ugh, Bonaparte. And it feels very personal. And it's one of those weird, I feel like a weird uh, reverberation through time. My parents will do that, but only about like Watergate figures. You know, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm much, much younger than you. Well, my people were always late breeders. I mean, all the way back to the 1700s, people in my family were having children in their 40s. So this is like the thing where President John Tyler has has two has two living grand grandchildren that are alive today. Are you yeah. are you like Napoleon's uh, great grandson or something? It, compared to someone whose family traditionally breeds at, at the age of 22, just dating back to 1790, I am at least two or three generations slower. You know, there are only five generations in my family compared to nine in someone else's. Well done. Congratulations. Well, I mean, well, all it means is that we're less evolved. Or less attractive, maybe. Well, closer to our Neanderthal uh, relatives. Oh, I just meant that it took you longer to reproduce per generation. Oh, so, no. So, I, so finding partners was probably the problem. I think, I think, <laughs> I think it's the opposite. I think uh, too many partners and not enough time. Mary Anning's family was not Quaker like your ancestors, but they were nonconformist. You know, they were dissenters, which back then just meant anybody but the Church of England. So dissenters from the Anglican faith, but not Catholic. Right. In, in the other way, they thought the Anglicans had not reformed enough. Aha. These were like super Protestants. Right. She was a Congregationalist. So, you know, along the same lines as the Pur the Puritans, the pilgrims with the buckles right. on the hats. And <laughs> apparently I'm explaining this to uh, a two-year-old. <laughs> good old buckle hats. You know, with the turkeys that look like hands. Sure. Uh <laughs> And, and that was one reason why Mary Anning was a little more educated. You know, they, they, you couldn't go to nice schools back then uh, if you were not Anglican, but they were not against teaching women. So she learned to read and write at Sunday school, which would not necessarily have been common. And when her dad died, um, when she was, I think, 11 years old, she kind of took over the family business of going out on the beach and looking to see what curiosities she could find and sell. Uh-huh. And she became an expert. She became very, very good at this, um, partially because of just some amazing finds. There, there must not have been that many people doing this because we have record of Mary Anning making multiple extraordinary first-of-their-kind finds. Of, of what? In 1811, she found the first ichthyosaur. Uh, a few years later, she found the first plesiosaur. She found the first pterosaur, you know, like a pterodactyl-type flying these are big animals. Yes. Not dinosaurs, interestingly. Did you know that none of these are dinosaurs? What are they? Lizards? They're large reptiles who lived contemporaneous with the dinosaurs, but oh. apparently not all giant lizards are dinosaurs. Uh-huh. And not all dinosaurs are giant lizards. That's, that's the correct. That's the dinosaur fallacy. That's correct, because birds are dinosaurs. Right. Like, not just descendants of, but they're actually in the same clade. But, you know, the difference is that uh, apparently most of our reptiles to date, their limbs kind of come out to the side like they sprawl. Yeah. Imagine a crocodile with his right, straight out. arms sticking out to the side. Whereas to, uh, what defines a dinosaur is the way its hips are structured. The hind limbs are essentially erect. They, and sta they stand straight up. We're not 100% sure whether dinosaurs weren't birds 
uh, the, the like the big dinosaurs weren't, oh, like, weren't feathered. Oh, right. There's the new trend to give them all kind of purple and pink plumage and yeah, they have look them beautiful. make rawr, rawr. <laughs> They look like Aztec gods. Oh, you think it's beautiful. Like you like the new glam dinosaurs. I know that you're like a traditionalist, a scale dinosaur guy. I miss the scaly Godzilla dinosaurs. Yeah, but the purple feathered dinosaurs. I mean, they're just so ludicrous to my 1970s eye that I do. I prefer them. I think well, the Bowie dinosaurs are perfect for what they are. But I just can't imagine them in a movie chase scene, you know? Yeah. Like if we were to make Jurassic Coast. <laughs> It'd be like when the, when the Roadrunner goes, and leaves a little cloud of feathers. <laughs> <laughs> so she's discovering these dinosaurs that have never been collected. Yeah, the first ichthyosaur that she, she and her brother find is, uh, you know, they don't even, you know, extinction is not a thing. They find, think it must be some kind of weird crocodile. Even though, and I guess that's not a bad comparison. If you look at an ichthyosaur today, well, you can't. But if you were to see an ichthyosaur, it looks more like a fish. It's a, uh -huh. it's a reptile that's evolved into the shape of a fish because that's what works in the ocean. Yeah. And they just thought they were selling a crocodile. They found a local nobleman to take it off their hands for 23 pounds sterling. Which was a lot of money. Then. That is a lot of money. I did the math. That's about 1,750 pounds today. So... 2,500 bucks, 2500 bucks for a, for a, a hungry family in a little market town. That's good money. You right. know? That, that's the kind of thing that'll keep you going. And as a result, Anning, Mary went out to the beach time and time again. It's problematic that I'm using her first name, huh? For a male scientist, we would never say, we would always say Owen or Cuvier. Or, right. You Darwin. Yes. So we don't Anning. We, we wouldn't say Charles. Chuck was, uh, Chuck was out there in the Galapagos <laughs> looking at the boobies. So let's say Anning. We should say Anning. The future is going to be super egalitarian. Right. But uh, not to mention that there are more than one Mary Anning. So let's eliminate that, that confusion. Let's say the second Mary Anning who didn't burn up every time we mention her. <laughs> so she's a classic 19th century self-taught scientist. She is a scientist. That's the thing. She's not just a collector. She becomes an expert on these things. And I think by necessity, you know, when she finds a bone, she needs to be able to say, boo, what kind of animal might this go to? Where can I fit it into a frame? Who can I sell this to? And as a result, she starts doing her own dissection of modern day fish and cuttlefish hmm. to the degree that she becomes that good. She can just see a bone and be like, yeah, this is another plesiosaur. And she knows, you know, which drawer to put it in. Wow. A true archaeologist. Yeah, she has the same kind of mastery of these animals that don't exist that a, a trained veterinarian might have for the skeleton of a dog or a cat or a iguana or a ferret. So when did she make the transition from being a collector and then, you know, a sort of lay assembler of bones to a theorist? Well, there was less of a distinction back then, right? There is no paleontology. Right. There's a geological society in London that gets together and harumph harumphs about the new controversial findings of Charles Lyell or whoever. Right. But she's not allowed to go on, no. four, on four different axes. You know, she's a woman. Right. She's from a, out of town. She's from down south and has a weird regional country accent. Right. She is poor. Right. And she's not, well, five axes, I guess. She's not educated and she's not Anglican. Everything's wrong. Her religion, her background, her accent, her gender. So um, she can't even, they wouldn't allow her to darken the door of their Royal Geological Society. Not even guests could be women back then. <laughs> not even women you could, could be guests. You couldn't sit, as a woman, you couldn't even sit in the gallery? Then no, there was no, there was no gallery. This is science, John. Right, right. This of is course. science. How would a mere woman understand science? But she was doing real theorizing, you know? She would, uh, 
she built a plesiosaur skeleton only to have George Cuvier be like, bull, uh, you put 35 vertebrae on this thing. Do, do you know what a plesiosaur is? It's these long necked, yeah. it's the Loch Ness monster. Right. They're, they're Loch Ness monsters. Right. Not all of them had the super long neck, but, but this was one with 35 vertebrae. They're gigantic. Yeah. Some of them are up to, um, 50, 50 feet. I yeah, think. yeah. 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 The, the ones that Mary were the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs she was finding were, I think are, uh, topped out at 11 feet, but still it's the size of a car. 11 feet or 11 meters? 11 feet, the oh. ones she was finding. Oh, I see. Still. So, so, you know, these are big, for an animal living in the United Kingdom, this would blow your mind. Well, and particularly something to dig out of the side of a crumbling cliff. Sure, she's finding a full skeleton the size of a car while the sand is crumbling around her, which was super dangerous, by the way. Winter was the best time to go because that's when the new stuff was getting exposed. But it's also when there's terrible winds and tide and waves. In 1831, she was out there kind of clinging to the cliffs and part of the bluff just collapsed, missing her apparently by inches, but tragically um, smushing her terrier, Trey, who was her faithful companion who always went to the cliffs with her. Oh, I see. Not a terrier tray, not like a, a tray to carry terriers. Not a terriers, tray on which you put terriers. But a terrier named Trey. A terrier, tray. comma, Trey. He was oh. a 90s R&B singer, I believe. <laughs> her dog. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, Trey with an accent. Yeah, you. had an accent. Uh, so what How year... many times are you going to say accent you in this, <laughs> in this podcast? So far, I've said it twice. How many opportunities do you get in a typical day? L'omnibus. <laughs> so uh, the cliff fell close enough to her that it killed her dog, who was presumably standing right next to her. Right, and she said she felt like she was just inches away from losing her own life as well, but, wow. but tragically lost her beloved Trey, who was, who was often pictured with her. By this point, she had enough of an image that uh, she was kind of well-known. You know, all the scientists, amateur or otherwise, knew about this amazing phenomenon collector, and they would come to her, her shop and see what her new stuff was, and they were just amazed at the quality of the merchandise and people, you know, she would sell all her stuff to these upper class twits who fancied themselves as self-trained scientists. They would exhibit the thing in London, write up a little journal article, get all the press as if they were the discoverer. Of course. And she would just go back to the cliffs with her dog. Well, so this is the era of the gentleman scientist exactly. or the, the self-taught scientist. Then there wasn't much that differentiated what we would describe as an actual scientist from just a nobleman who decided to make science his folly. Yeah, they didn't even have words like biology, I think. It was just the natural sciences, you know? But typically, in order to pursue a scientific hobby, you would have to be at your leisure and not be working. So she's the rare instance of a scientist who's self-taught, just as everyone was, but one who is like also struggling to use her finds to put coal in the furnace. Her whole family was very close to starvation multiple times. I think at one point there was a gentleman in London who she had sold many of her fossils to, found out about her predicament, and he resold everything he had bought from her at auction and made like 400 pounds and sent her essentially the full proceeds oh. so that she could actually feed her family. Seems like some of these guys could have just sent her 400 pounds without having to go through all this rigmarole, but... Oh, you know how it is on those <laughs> estates. You know, it, everything's nice, but there's whole wings they don't heat. Right, that's right. They're not super liquid, I right. think. So now wait, you were telling a story about how oh, someone yeah. challenged her about the number of vertebrae. Sure. It, it's a Loch Ness Monster-like thing with a long neck. Although we now know the Loch Ness Monster to be a, a hoax. You know, I don't know if we know that. Are you a believer? 
Listen, I grew up believing in the Loch Ness Monster, and that's one of my foundational religious texts, and I'm not going to abandon it just because God is testing my faith. Your foundational texts are those time-life mysteries of the unexplained books from that's, the, from the right. early 80s? That black and white film of that speedboat racing across Loch Ness and then disintegrating when it apparently hit a monster. The famous photo, the surgeon's photo, yeah. which I think they call the surgeon's photo because he was a gynecologist. And right. you, you don't want to say the gynecologist's photo. <laughs> right. I think it, we now know the guy, it was just some guy with a beef against the Daily Mail who made a wooden toy. Oh, we now know that, do we? There's... Just as we now know that the earth wasn't created in seven days or six <laughs> days or whatever. There appears to be pretty good evidence. Sure, I'm, heretic. I'm, so, I'm sorry, John. Well, also, uh, the big feats are out there still, too. We're, I should not be trying to rob you of your faith. There should be like a creationist museum at Loch Ness where Scottish yeah. people can go to see an alternate history where the Loch Ness Monster was real. Yeah, it's the Time Life Museum where the Bermuda Triangle and the Big Feet and uh, and Loch Ness and all these things still exist. Well, remember that the Jurassic Coast was a tropical sea. So if the Loch Ness Monster is a plesiosaur, he is very cold today. Oh, right. The highlands of Scotland are not where you want to put a cold-blooded, right. a cold-blooded <laughs> uh, lizard sea monster who's used to sparkling warm azure waters. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. Uh, and, uh, so the 35 vertebra was, uh, he thought she was having him on, like she was, she was faking him. She, yeah. Cause it was not uncommon back then for people to put bones together in charlatan ways and be like, look, I just discovered the Dimetra Guanadon, you know, <laughs> and they just combined two skeletons. Right. Um, Dimetra Guanadon is an inc incredible Swedish metal band. <laughs> I thought it was one of the transformers. And, uh, and she was able to demonstrate convincingly her work and, uh, you know, the geological society backed Anning and shouted Cuvier down and he was forced to admit, yes, yes. Now that I've seen the actual bones, my drawings were wrong. I'm, I'm sorry. So the, the Royal society recognized her and even though didn't publicly acknowledge her, they relied on her. She couldn't be a member, but yeah. And not just her collection abilities, her actual scientific discoveries. She and another woman named Elizabeth Philpot realized that the some of the structures in belemnites, these cuttlefish, uh -huh. looked just like the ink sacs in modern cuttlefish. Mary knew this from her home vivisection uh -huh. <laughs> of hobbies. And so they were able to, you know, mix water into these fossilized ink sacs and actually reconstitute some of the ink no. and prove that that's what these belemnites were, that they had inky, they could shoot inky blasts just like modern cephalopods. That's cool. And so even though she couldn't attend the Geological Society, she never published during her lifetime one letter to the magazine of natural history. 
that had gotten something wrong about sharks. And she's like, nope, I have samples of both kind, the curved teeth and the straight teeth. Her, her one, her, her one published work was a, was a angry letter to the editor. <laughs> Dear sirs. It has come to my attention that the parking fees downtown. <laughs> no, except it was like anti-mansplaining. Like she actually had the facts and right. could provide an erratum to this, uh, to this article. So she laid the foundation. She didn't just become a lay scientist. She laid the foundation of paleontology. She did. The The fact that the Victorians were the first to become aware that there had been an age of reptiles, that extinction was a thing, that there was a tremendous diversity. You know, there were flying ones, sea monster ones, fish looking ones. Um, to a huge degree, that's Mary Anning's legacy. And people knew it. Uh, even after her, shortly after her death in 1847, she died fairly young. She had breast cancer. Oh. Uh, everybody in town thought she was, they didn't know about the sickness. They just thought she was going downhill and had turned into a drunk in uh-huh. her old age. Uh-huh. In fact, she was taking laudanum for the incredible pain of untreated breast cancer. And when she died in 1847, she was immediately recognized. You know, within a few years, there was a, sa- a stained glass window in the chapel commemorating her scientific discoveries. So posthumously Um, acknowledged in a different way than she was in her lifetime. Yes. Uh, But, you know, surprisingly shortly after her lifetime, you know, it it wasn't just like uh, in the recently, you know, I think in just a couple of years ago, a a, a poll of British scientists named her as one of the 10 greatest woman scientists of all time. But it seems like she would be one of the 10 greatest scientists or at least within the top 50 scientists of all time, she invented paleontology. Hey, we created the separate woman scientist list. <laughs> we got to use it on somebody. The good old women scientist award. <laughs> well, so 1847, she died in 1847. That's within the reign of Queen Victoria. We're now talking about Victorian science, which yes. was the, that was the heyday of it. And it's right around the time that Richard Owen finally coins the word dinosaur. And there's an exhibition of dinosaur skeletons at the Crystal Palace. And this starts to seep into the popular culture. All of Mary Anning's groundbreaking work happened decades before your average Cockney on the street was knew anything to, about any of this. Was able to say, dinosaur. Nah. <laughs> love there's, the iguanometrodons. I, I love to have an opportunity in this podcast for us to do our terrible Cockney accents. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel, I feel like we're, uh, we're extras in Mary Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Like a lot of people do Michael Caine when they do Cockney, but I just do Dick Van Dick Van Dyke. Dick Van Dyke in, uh, in Mary the... <laughs> Poppins, step in time. Boy there. So um, did this discovery of, well, of, of the concept of deep time, right, which would be time beyond the Not flood. Not 6,000 years old. These people still believed in a literal six-day creation where, you know, by 8 p.m., God's done with the sun and he's moving on to the moon. Did this have... Social ramifications, uh, widespread social ramifications, in that it was challenging the core, like religious belief of the time. Yeah, I think religion is probably where you see it most in the popular consciousness. And I mean, we're kind of still arguing this case even today in our own time, whether or not evolution is real. I mean, there are school boards across America that refuse to teach it or challenge its. Doctrine. It's a regional phenomenon. <laughs> right. But there are still... I don't want to give the idea to the future that we're all evolution and climate skeptics here in the early 21st century. Right. Some of us do believe in in, uh, in dinosaurs, but some... Uh, I mean, there are museums or... I'm sorry. There are museum in America dedicated to, uh, 
to a different interpretation of these. Sure, people riding dinosaurs up the ar- up the ramp to to Noah's Ark. Well, sure, Jesus riding a dinosaur, or maybe that's just maybe that's apocryphal. I feel like that might be <laughs> that might be progressive hyperbole, John. So these discoveries did like reverberate out from the scientific community into the larger world. Like if this would have affected Darwin's interpretation of his own observations shortly thereafter. Sure. This is contemporary with people like, you know, Charles Lyle discovering, you know, layers of, of sediment that can clearly be dated to millennia or right. hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years instead right. of centuries. And that changes it for a lot of people. It's, um, it increases the importance of the flood because you, you now need some explanation for where'd all these creatures go that I can't see anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, Marianne thought her ichthyosaurus was just a crocodile, but it very quickly became clear that there's nothing like a plesiosaur anywhere in the world today. To a scientist of the time, or let's say to Marianne, did she advance a theory of epical time? Well, Mary continued to have deep religious faith for the rest of her life. In oh. fact, she converted back to Anglicanism. Back to, oh, you mean just in the general sense of... Yeah, she had never been an Anglican. Right. She, I, I'm saying in the wrong direction. She converted upstream to it, Anglicanism. As part of a project to make herself more respectable or because of a religious... I mean, the doctrine between Anglicanism and Congregationalism, I understand to be more of a, a, a matter of firsthand contact with God rather than through the, the intermediaries of clergy. I can only imagine that re, that going to Anglicanism was a social move rather than one of religious conviction. But of course, I can't get inside the mind of someone moving upstream like that. Well, in this case, it was more because she lived in a small town and her congregationalist church was getting very small. Her pastor uh, had actually left to America to become an abolitionist. Oh, he was going to go, you know, invade against slavery. Oh, in fact, this is right after the United Kingdom outlawed slavery. Right. And so that was the next frontier. You know, we have to go to the Americas and, and enlighten them. Uh-huh. And so she, you know, I think it's just as a matter of convenience, she joined with the larger Church of England congregation in her town. Oh, because she just didn't like the, or the church was withering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she remained devout in spite of her discoveries. Yeah. A lot of people's faith adjusted. You know, she, she knew she believed in an old earth, obviously, but it never shook her faith. And I think it just became the adjustment people made to God exists and is working through these scientific processes. Or the idea that the six days of creation were metaphorical. And in fact, God's days were longer than ours. Right. I I don't know to what degree she would have had a theory, Yeah, but just the idea that isn't God's creation amazing? You know, it's, uh, he, he does all this, right. you know, um, which kind of is still the rhetoric I think you hear in a lot of religious circles today. I went to Jesuit school and that was essentially what... The marvels of the earth and the universe are not, don't tear away your faith in God, they, they build it up. Right. By the way, speaking of other amazing discoveries, she was, speaking of feces, yeah. she was the first to discover what coprolites were. What are coprolites? They're fossilized dinosaur dung. Uh-huh. There, there were these giant sort of stony balls that the ancients called bezoars and mm. would, would grind up to put in their uh, apothecary concoctions. You know, you would drink that for a sore elbow. And she actually started pulling them apart and found what she recognized because of her anatomical knowledge to be little tiny fish bones and bits of shell. Huh. And she realized this is dinosaur poop. 
And she was the first to make that discovery and turned out to be right. Wow. In 1826, Anning opened a glass-fronted shop. I'm sorry, I'm still marveling at the coinage, ground-up stony balls. I just, it, it, I can't think of anything else. I have to put it out of my head now. Ground-up stony balls? <laughs> I just have to push, push that out of my ears. And let's go back to glass-fronted storefront. <laughs> I'm sorry that I'm making you hungry with these delicious sounding. Well, I'm just thinking about my, my tincture, how much more powerful it would be. My little apothecary uh, healing powders. Sure. All these things you've been taking, probably none of them have dinosaur dung. No, jeez. Uh, uh, so anyway, she saved up enough money somehow to open her own store. Yeah. She opened a uh, glass fronted shop, Anning's Fossil Depot, hmm. you know, right kind of down by the waterfront I in, like uh, in Lyme Regis. I like this. And became well known, you know, not just collectors, but, you know, local dignitaries. I mean, the, the King of Prussia or whatever would come by and marvel at the merchandise. <laughs> would happen by. It was a, it was a tourist <laughs> attraction. Um, so it was well, a well-known local landmark. And there's quite a bit of speculation that as a result of this store's renown, Mary Anning was actually the inspiration for the 1850s allocution lesson, which later became a tongue twister. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. But that's not some imaginary she. It's actually a reference to someone many people would have heard of. Wow. The famed amateur paleontologist, Mary Anning. And that concludes Mary Anning. Entry 050.PS3420. Certificate number 36073 in the omnibus. Listeners, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your future far-off stony ball grinding times, our Twitter and Instagram handles were Omnibus Project with at symbols in front of them. That's kind of a little stony ball right yeah. there. I also maintained an Instagram account under my name. Come visit it because it's full of amazing selfies of a middle-aged guy who lives in a house full of strange and wondrous fossil findings. Speaking of fossils, <laughs> look at pictures of John on his Instagram. <laughs> and we can also be found on Facebook as Omnibus Project. Uh, our address for email, a popular form of written uh, electronic communication in our day, was omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. Listeners, from our now fossilized vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long we are going to be here before our coprolites are all that's left. If you can find one of John's coprolites, please try rubbing it on you as an ointment or tincture. He would love to be commemorated in that way. You, you will discover it's one of mine because rather than fish bones and shells, you will find microscopic particles of meatball sandwiches. <laughs> and in fact, that's probably a way to absorb the, the entries of the omnibus. If you don't, if you never find the golden record, perhaps you can impart some of this wisdom by just, by just rubbing the, the Roderick lights on yourself. That's right. We hope and pray that there will be no catastrophe that will fossilize us all, that the worst may never come. But if that's not true and it comes soon, this recording, like every recording we make, may be our final word to you. But we hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you again from the past soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>